Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I'm glad uh, for the opportunity to, to be here, and thank you for the kind words of uh, the introduction. I am uh, was asked to speak on uh, this subject from uh, this book that I first wrote. It's my second book, actually, back in the 90s. This is a revised edition. It came out um, 2019, revised and updated edition. I was pastoring in the Chicago area where I, I served a church there for 15 years, and it's much like this area in terms of uh, dominant religious you know, uh, background for most people, the religious influences on the culture. And so most of our people, or many of them, had grown up in this educational system and this religious uh, denomination uh, which teaches... Uh, you cannot have assurance of salvation in this world. That only those the church canonizes as saints can have assurance, and that's going to be near the end of their lives and so forth. So uh, you cannot have assurance of salvation. So um, I determined I needed to teach on that. And I still have the yellow legal pad sheet where I began to sketch this out and anticipated about a three-sermon um, series and ended up doing about 13 um, because I began to see what a big issue assurance of salvation was and so I have a problem in one sense of addressing that in two parts here and then in the worship service but uh, I'm going to do more of a shotgun approach here and then do more focused in the um, worship service. But I want to begin by saying that I think assurance, or struggling with assurance of salvation is normal. We have one entire book of the Bible that, written to address the subject of assurance of salvation. That book is what, by the way? First John. Ten times in there, John makes a statement similar to this one. By this, we know we have passed out of darkness into light because we love the brothers. In other words, we have a, a love for brothers and sisters in Christ such that we cannot imagine life apart from them. The idea of a, a real converted person, a real Christian, who has no desire for connection with a local church, well, that's, we, we've got a problem there. That's contrary to the idea that we know we passed out of darkness into light. We're, we're Christians because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if they say they love us, but they can be content never to be with us, well, there, there's reason there to at least question that love, don't you think? If you don't think so, try that on your spouse. I love you. I don't care if I ever see you again. But I really love you. Well, at the very least, they would question that love, don't you think? Well, as I rewind all that, about ten times in 1 John, he makes statements like that. By this, and then he'll describe what this is. This is one of the ways we know we're, we're saved. We're Christians. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 5, he says, These things, meaning the, this letter of 1 John, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you, people 
who believe, that you may know that you have eternal life. So here are people, John thought they were believers, they thought they were believers, they had believed, and yet they did not know for sure that they have eternal life. So John said, I'm writing something to you who believe, I'm convinced you believe, you think you believe, so I'm writing to you so that you may know and, and not wrestle with this issue anymore, not wrestle with uncertainty. You may know that you have eternal life. Well, my point in saying all that is this. If you have one entire book of the Bible written for one to address one subject, you can be sure it's a pretty common issue. Right? You know, one whole book of the Bible dealing with assurance of salvation, that convinces me what my experience tells me anyway, that this is a common problem. In other words, it's normal, and indeed I will argue healthy, for a real Christian to at least occasionally struggle with whether or not they're a Christian. Now, persistent, unresolvable doubts are another matter altogether. one of the many things is I realized, you know, well, somehow I need to address that, I need to address this, that, that's in this uh, little book here. Um, there's so many things when you think about it. Seems like a simple subject once you, re- you know, it's a yes or no, once you resolve this issue. But it's, there's nuance to that that's, uh, that's pretty, uh, pretty in-depth. Um, so I think it is normal. We have one whole book of the Bible written to address the subject. So if you occasionally struggle with that, um, I think that's, that is normal. I think it's healthy. You say, well, how can that be healthy? Well, I think it can demonstrate the fact that you do want Christ and salvation more than anything. One of the best evidences, I think, that a person is born again is that they really wonder about it. Because generally, lost people don't sit around wringing their hands wondering if they're right with God. Lost people generally sort of have the attitude of, lost people, if they're in the church, will usually sort of have the attitude of, oh, I've done that. Which is, what a horrible statement that is anyway, related to salvation. I've taken care of that. Oh yeah, I did that years ago, blah, blah, blah. And it's sort of a matter-of-fact approach to their assurance. I don't need to worry about that. You know, that, that's, that's a settled issue. Our lost people outside the church generally presume that they're okay with God anyway. So they don't struggle with it. I think Satan's two main strategies are try to convince saved people that they're lost and lost people that they're saved. So for a Christian to struggle with assurance on occasion, I think, does demonstrate it matters to you. Salvation matters to you. You know it's the most important thing in the world. And so you want it, and you want Christ more than anything. So you you really want to have a certainty about this. That's a good, healthy thing. And I I think it's normal, and I think it's healthy when a, a Christian occasionally says, could I really be saved and say what I just said? Could I do what I do? Could I struggle with what I struggle with and really be a Christian? I, that's, a, that's a good question to ask. 
I think that's a, a mark generally of eternal life. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be approached rightly and not, not blown off. So I think the struggle with assurance is normal and healthy, but it's so hard to admit, isn't it? Because we think we're the only ones, and that's why I've actually started with it's common, it's healthy. And the longer you profess to be a Christian, the harder it is to admit that. How can a leader of this church in their 50s, let's say, who's been a leader for many years, who teaches, how can they say, you know what, sometimes I'm not even sure I'm saved? What will these guys on the front row think about that? You know, I'm twice, three times their age, and I've taught them as long as they can remember, and now I'm standing before them telling them I'm not really sure I'm a Christian. Well, I think it, that's normal. But the older you get, the harder it is to admit it because of the example I've just given. What will people think? If I'm one of the leaders in the church and I say, you know, sometimes I'm not even sure I'm saved. So I think First John tells us actually it's a normal thing. But persistent, unresolvable doubts are something different. When the biblical antidotes to a lack of assurance do not have an effect when applied repeatedly, that's a different scenario. Now, can a person struggle with assurance their whole life and still be a Christian? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Can a person appear to be, in other words, one person never has these things resolved. They go to their grave struggling with assurance. Can such a person then go to heaven? I think so. Can a person give very strong evidence of salvation and in the end prove not to be converted. Yep. I mean, not only have we had some very high-profile cases in the last few years of that in our own culture, but do you think the apostles knew the marks of salvation? I mean, Jesus has sent them out two by two, right? Heal the sick, raise the dead, you know, preach the gospel. Now, they, this is on, you know, the, the other side of Pentecost, but I think they had a pretty good idea. And then after three years of being with each other and talking about Jesus and what he's doing and how amazing he is when he's, you know, kind of away from them, when Jesus says the night before he's crucified, one of you will betray me, did all of them turn and look at Judas, you know? Yeah, we knew about that guy. We were wondering about him all along. Right? No, what did they do? Lord, Lord, is it I? Every one of them, is it I? Could I be the one? So none of them suspected Judas. But even more convincingly, do you think the Apostle Paul knew the marks of salvation? Probably as well as anyone, right? Anyone ever. If someone could spot a truly saved person, the Apostle Paul could spot that person. Demas fooled Paul until the very end. And only at the end, Demas, having loved in this, this present world, deserted me. So Paul thought Demas was a Christian, but he proved not to be. Well, if Paul can be fooled, we can too.
And the Bible warns us there will be people like that. So um, that's disillusioning when it happens. But prepare for it. The younger you are in the faith, the more shocked sometimes you are when someone who gives every, every evidence, even preaches and people are converted. How could that person prove not to be a real Christian? Well, that happens. Judas apparently not only performed miracles, but when he preached, people were converted. When in fact he wasn't. Perhaps the same with Demas. That's going to happen. It's unsettling when it does, but it will happen. But how do we know whether or not we are converted? That's the most important thing. I, I think the greatest cause for most people would be, well, I'll tell this kind of story, and I think it'll reveal what I mean. Uh, I, I would actually like to do it right now, but I guess time doesn't permit. But if you have a ministry responsibility where you teach a class, lead a group, you might want to try this sometime. But don't do it when you're discouraged. If you're already kind of discouraged about the progress of the group, don't do it then. Do it only when you're already feeling pretty good about things. Give everybody a sheet of paper, you know, and uh, say to everyone, um, how many times do you think you've heard the gospel in your life? And a group like this, particularly if it's dominated you know, by people with approximately the same amount or color of hair as I have, uh, we'll roll our eyes, you know, you know, thousands of times, you know. I've heard the gospel thousands. I've been raised in the church. I've heard the gospel, you know, thousands, thousands of times. All right, good. Then you're, you believe the gospel. You're a Christian, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So uh, you got the sheet of paper. Um, write, it, write, write it down for me, would you? Uh, give me a paragraph. What is the gospel? And people freeze. And just stare at me. And I go, no, wait, wait a minute. Let's back up. You're a Christian, right? Uh-huh. And you just told me you've heard the gospel thousands of times, right? Uh-huh. And you, you, you had to believe the gospel to be a Christian, right? Uh-huh. Okay. You can't believe it if you don't know what it is. Right? So write it down. What is the message you believed to be saved? What is the gospel? And then the foot shuffling starts. I know, wait a minute. Wait a minute, back up. This is the main message of the church. The main message. And you have literally heard it thousands of times. So what is it? And remember, you can't go to heaven if you don't believe this message. And you can't believe it if you don't know what it is, right? Uh-huh. Okay. What is it? Just simple, short paragraph. What is it? See, if you've been through the experience, you should be able to tell me about that, right? I'm probably the least mechanical person in this room. 
But if I go through the experience of taking the doorknob off a door, I should at least be able to tell you about it, right? I say, I, I may not even know how to, use, how to describe it. So I, so I went up and I looked and there's four circles. There's this kind of plate behind the doorknob and there are four circles. And in each corner, there's these little circles and they had a slot in them. So I went and, and found this rod. You know, it's a metal rod. It's about this long. It's pressed flat on one end, had a clear yellow handle on the other end. And I took that place where it was, it was pressed flat and I stuck it in those slots and turned that yellow handle. And these little curly cue looking things backed out of there. When all four of them came out, the doorknob came off. Well, I didn't know any of the technical language, right? But you understood exactly what I meant, didn't you? The same is true if you have been through the experience of believing the gospel of Jesus. Because you've been through the experience, you can describe this to people. I, I heard this message. Here's what I understood. Here's what I believed. If you have believed the gospel, you've got to know what the gospel is. At least minimally. And I've been astonished to find our most faithful, long-term attendees struggle to explain the gospel. Now, folks, if you struggle to explain the gospel, I mean, we've got some big problems. I mean, if that's true, I mean, first of all, forget exhorting people to evangelism. I mean, if in the friendly confines of their local church Sunday school class, you don't know what, you can't explain the gospel, forget trying to get people to explain the gospel out in the hostile environment of the world. If in a place where we all say we love the gospel, love one another, and we can't discuss what is the gospel, forget out in the hostile environment of the world trying to you know, urge people, go out there and share the gospel. So, I mean, that's one of the big problems. But if people come to our church week after week after week after week and don't know what the main message of the church is, the main message of the Bible, I mean, we got a problem. And so this is where I think the root of assurance is. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, do you know what the message of salvation is? Do you have clarity on that? I'm not looking as a professor for theological precision that can pass a final exam in theology. But what is the basic, the essential message that if you don't know this message and don't believe it, you won't go to heaven? Folks, knowing this message is more important than knowing any computer password you have. It's more important than knowing your social security number. What is the message without which you will not go to heaven? We need to be clear on this. And the lack of clarity, I believe, is the main reason most people who struggle with assurance, do so. So first I would start there. And by the way, I mean, just don't want to leave you hanging there. The, the, the gospel in one word is Jesus. In a phrase, the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus. Who he is, what he's done. And then you can stretch it out from there until you've got a message this this big but and sometimes when I'm teaching people they're preparing to go for a mission trip and they'll have opportunities sometimes in cross-cultural situation very short time period you know using some hand signals the, the gospel is a message about God you 
Jesus, and you. It's about God, holy God, the creator God, created everything, who gave us his law, but you broke his law, and you're under his judgment and condemnation. But Jesus, the Son of God, came to live the life we couldn't live, to die a death on our behalf as our substitute. And that qualified him, his, his life qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. But God raised him from the dead to prove that he accepted that sacrifice, ascended him to heaven. And you need to believe that message. You need to repent of your lawbreaking, of your sin, and believe that Jesus will make you right with God. So the message of the gospel, very simply, it's about God, first of all. You, your response to what God did. Jesus and you. I mean, there's so many ways to, you know, little memory clues, cues to remember the gospel, but it's not an official way to say it. Sometimes people speak of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Just a number of different ways to approach it, but do you have clarity on the message? Let's say you're going home today and Right, and just before you come up to a, a light or a stop sign, the person in front of you goes through and wham, they get T-boned from the side, the car rolls over, people are thrown from the car. And so you, you run up to someone who's been thrown from the car, and there they are gasping for breath, and you think, oh my goodness, this person's not going to live even until the ambulance gets here. And they grab you by the collar and bring you close and say, I don't want to go to hell. What do I have to do? And their eternity is hanging in the balance. What is the message of the gospel? Well, what do you tell them? You can't say, well, believe in Jesus. And they say, believe, believe what? I've always believed Jesus was real. Well, that's not enough, is it? The demons believe that, the Bible says. The demons believe in Jesus in one sense. But what do you tell a dying person who's just got seconds to live? What do you tell them? is the message of salvation. You see how critical it is to be, to be clear on this? I, I would hope that some, in some settings, you're a class or some other group, you know, would, would talk about this and uh, discuss clarity on this. I, I would urge you, you know, as I'm sure your pastor does, when, when you bring new members in to hear their testimony, make sure they're clear. We want everyone to be clear on what the main message of the church is, is, is on the gospel. So that's why we want to receive members who give a, a, can give a clear profession of faith. They understand our message, and they believed our message. And a lack of clarity, I think, is one of the main reasons people um, struggle with assurance. So um, there's a section on that here. But for, for those of us who are clear, um, but who struggle on occasion, which is normal, uh, let, let's affirm that it is possible, even though we struggle on occasion with it, the Bible teaches there is such a thing as assurance. First John tells us that, uh, that it's normal to have the doubts uh, many, many causes, but I think the primary one is to be unclear on the gospel. I want to talk about some others uh, in a moment. 
common problems. I think those really converted as children, as your pastor and I were, tend to struggle with assurance more than those converted later in life. I think uh, some people struggle with the unforgivable sin. Well, I think everyone does on every once in a while, at least at some point. And then your pastors addressed that recently. I think moms of young children uh, are in a situation they often struggle with assurance more than uh, uh, a lot of others. And um, I'll hope to address these at least briefly. But the basis of our assurance is a, a stool, really um, a threefold stool. And that is the character of God, the work of Jesus, and the promises of Scripture. The character of God, the work of Jesus, and the promises of Scripture. That God does not lie. That he calls himself, he uses the names for himself of, of Savior, names he gives his son Savior, uh, and that he will save his people from their sins. These things that God is true, he does not lie. He has sent his son Jesus, whose work is done on our behalf, so we trust in his work, not our own. You ever try to trust in your own, you're going to be left to wonder. Those who try to work their way to heaven, you never know when you've done enough. You think, I've, I've finally done it, I've done enough. Well, maybe somebody's done more, and that's really what God requires. Maybe you, need, you should have climbed one more rung. You never know when you're actually there. But we know that Jesus, the work of Jesus, has satisfied the wrath of God, has satisfied the requirements of God. And so we rest by faith in His work, not anything we have done. And then that the promises of God are true. They can be trusted. They are reliable. These are the things we look to and nothing we have done because you look at yourself and you'll never be satisfied. I can remember when I was pastoring the Chicago area, a young woman coming up uh, every Sunday night. We would sit on the front row and I still see her arms twisted like this. She'd say, I I'm just not sure I've repented enough. I'm not sure I've rep I know it's repent and believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure I've repented enough. And strangely, this self-examination be became sort of a twisted self-centeredness. I finally just said, look, if you're going to go to hell, go to hell looking to Jesus. Stop looking at yourself. You're looking too much at what you have done and whether you have done enough. Look to Jesus and what he has done. Yes, we're told to examine ourselves. Test yourself. See if you were in the faith. That's a big biblical examination. But the predominant focus is to be on Christ and His work. And once we begin to look too much on our sin, as well as our righteousness, but to look on our sin without looking at the work of Jesus on behalf of sin, is where we get in trouble. So understand the foundation, the character of God, the work of Jesus that is sufficient, it is finished, and the promises of Scripture. All who believe in Him will have eternal life. He's true to those promises.
All right, those are some foundational matters. And so, as I said, I, I've got to deal, do a sort of a shotgun approach anyway. So uh, let me address some of the common problems here. So one is the idea of uh, those who are truly converted as children, as I think I was. As you grow older, uh, you, you know more, of course, you learn more, and you begin to look back and say, did I really understand? Or did I uh, know what I was talking about? And it's impossible to go back in time to try to get into your nine-year-old head, as I was at the time, my nine-year-old heart. Did I really understand? Did I understand enough? Did I say the right words? Did I uh, really mean it? It's impossible to go back to that. So we always want to make assurance of salvation a present tense experience. Are you right with God now? That's the first thing to nail down. Don't try to go back and say, was I saved then? The question is really, are you saved now? Settle that first of all. Are you saved now? Then we can go back and look at when do you think you might have actually been born again? And you may end up saying, well, I'm not sure if it was here or if it was here. But are you right with God now? So assurance of salvation is always a present tense experience. Don't tell me about the past. Do you love Christ supremely now? Is Christ the most important thing to you now? Do you want him and his salvation now more than anything? Okay, let's, let's deal with that. Rather than trying to go back to the past, because we've already seen a person can appear to be converted in the past, but not now. So are you right with God now, and how do you know? What do you rely upon is your assurance that you're right with God now. So let's look at the, the issue of children here. There, there's a special care with children in which we always want to encourage any step toward God, even when we are pretty confident they don't know what they're doing. You know, a four-year-old watches a baptismal service and says, I want to be baptized. Good. You know, we encourage any step toward God. Even though we, we know they don't understand, they're not clear on the gospel, we encourage any step toward God. You know, say, then we say things like, well, why do you want to be baptized? And, well, um, I, I've had children say, well, mommy and daddy say I should. Good. That's a good thing, isn't it? And, you know, we affirm any step toward God, but we want to make sure that they understand, especially when it comes to baptism, but now I'm getting a little, little far there, talking about baptism rather than uh, assurance. All of us want someone, especially children, though, who will pronounce us saved. We want someone in religious authority to say we're okay. I never tell anyone, yes, you are a Christian. Of any age. I wouldn't say that to Joe. Because I don't want anyone relying upon me for their assurance. Sometimes children or, or older teenagers or adults will look back at that experience when they were nine years old and say, well, you know, 
my parents were probably the most dedicated people in the church. My dad wouldn't have let me be baptized if he thought I wasn't a Christian. And my pastor wouldn't have baptized me if he did, unless he was sure I was a Christian. Who am I relying, who, who's my assurance relying upon now? My parents, my pastor. Everybody wants someone with some priestly authority, if you will, someone in religious authority to pronounce us saved. Then we can sort of rest and rely upon their judgment because we know they know God. That's priestcraft. That's looking to some human for, for assurance of our salvation. We always want to force them back to God and the scriptures. So if Joe were to confide in me, you know, I've really been struggling with my own assurance lately. I'm, I might say something as far as this. I might say, well, you know, here are the evidences in 1 John of those who are Christians. And Joe, I'm, I think I see these in your life. But that's stopping short of pronouncing him saved. You see that? Only God knows his heart. I mean, as we've already mentioned, we've seen some high-profile deconstructionists, as we say nowadays, people who've turned away from their faith, pastors and other leaders. Those who endure to the end, the Bible says, will be saved. So I don't want to pronounce someone saved, but I can say to this point, I see these in your life. I see these biblical evidences of salvation in your life, but I'm having him look at the Bible to see are these really there. He's not relying upon me. So I can encourage people to look at the scriptures and compare that with their life. But that's very different than me pronouncing them saved. Do you see that? Never say, well, sure, you're a Christian. I've known you all your life. Or I was there that night when you made a profession of faith. I was there that night when you were baptized. Sure, you're a Christian. You've been in church ever since then. Why would you do that if you weren't a Christian? I don't want, to, I don't want anybody to rely upon what I say about them. But rather having them look to the scriptures. Here's why I think uh, children, and I may have just stop with this one. Um, let's say here, uh, uh, imagine uh, concentric circles. So if I could draw it, I would. But okay, so here's my nine-year-old life inside this circle. And inside this circle is everything in my life, which wasn't a lot at that time. Okay, my bicycle, my baseball glove. Uh, uh, I had a little bit of an allowance, you know, 15 cents a week when, when it started out. And uh, I gave my life to Jesus. Okay? Whatever it was, I gave my life to Jesus. Now, the, the bigger circle out here, I'm 18. I'm at college, and I have a, a, a crisis experience at college. I mean, this is, this is real for me. Where I suddenly wake up one day and realize there are huge areas of my life that didn't even exist back here at nine I've got a part-time job so I've got a paycheck and I've never realized until one day hey you know this is God's money it's not a matter of sort of tipping God giving him some percentage all of this belongs to him what does God want me to do with this this is his money I work for it yeah but you know it's all by God's grace and God gave me this I've got a girlfriend I can't treat girls like all my friends do I'm a Christian and what does God want me to do with my life? These were big issues, and they didn't even exist back here. So I've got this gap, if you will, between 18 and 9. And I consciously place all of these under the lordship of Christ. Lord, I want to do what you want me to do with my life. 
this money is all yours. Lord, uh, I, I want to treat girls like you want me to. I want to marry the one you want. And a lot of us were trained to call that experience making Jesus Lord of our life. That I was saved here, but now I've made him Lord of my life. No, that, that's a false way of looking at that. What I did was consciously return to the Lordship of Christ over all my life that I had when I was nine years old. In other words, when I was nine years old, I don't remember if anyone said, Jesus is Lord of your life now. Do you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ? All I know is this. I wanted to live for Jesus. I wanted to give my life for Jesus. Give my life to Jesus. Well, that's Lordship, isn't it? Everything I have. It's not much. Baseball glove, allowance, bicycle. I want to I give my life to Jesus. I knew this. I wanted to do what Jesus told me to do. You showed me in the Bible, Jesus said to do this. I want to do that. That is Lordship. It's necessary to submit to the Lordship of Christ to be saved. I mean, that's the basic confession of faith, right? Jesus is Lord. But in the development of human development, I, I suddenly have this kind of adulthood stage experience where I look back and say, you know, I never have consciously said Jesus is Lord over all my relationships and Jesus is Lord over all my money. So I, I just consciously returned to the Lordship of Christ over all of life that I had to prof I profess to be saved. So some people realize, you know, I, I think that's when he became Lord or that's when I was saved. And frankly, I think for a lot of people, that second experience, powerful experience, is when many were saved. They weren't clear on the gospel back here. And each person's got to think through that in and of themselves. That's why we say the most important thing is are you saved today, not when was it in the past. There may be some issues about believer's baptism. If you were baptized at age 9, you realize you weren't a believer until 18, that second, that crisis experience. But that, again, that's another issue. So I think it is common for children who are truly converted to struggle with assurance later on. I think that's normal. I think, very quickly, I think it's common for moms of young children because they often aren't able to devote the time to the things of God they were accustomed to. And guilt often arises from that for a variety of reasons. Uh, the lack of spiritual input they used to get from the Scripture and from, from Bible studies and other things that used to minister to them. They often have to miss church more because of sick children and things like that. And they don't get the spiritual in enrichment and uh, encouragement that they used to get in the past. So I've, I've found it to be commonly true that moms of young children struggle with assurance more because they don't get the, the spiritual input that brings assurance as much as they used to. The unforgivable sin, your pastor has dealt with that. I deal with it in the book. The bottom line on the unforgivable sin, though, and I think virtually every Christian struggles with it. If you believe the Bible and you read in the Bible, there is something like the unforgivable sin, a real Christian often says, could I have done that? And that's a good sign. Most lost people don't wring their hands over whether they've committed the unforgivable sin. So I think it can be a very good sign. But the bottom line is, if you are concerned about it, you haven't done it. Lost people aren't concerned about it. The sheer presence of concern is not assurance that you are saved. That's not, the Bible doesn't say, and you will be saved if you're sure you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. 
saved by faith in Christ and his work. But generally, it is true. I mean, it is true. If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. And I, I could describe that from the Pharisees. Jesus pointed right in their face and said, you just committed the unforgivable sin. And they didn't care. So if you committed the unforgivable sin, you don't care that you have. And knowing that the Bible warns about it, a real Christian says, could I have done it? I, I, I one day had this thought. I one day said this. And d- did I commit the unforgivable sin? No. You may have committed a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And I think it's rejecting Christ despite enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. While my time is gone, oh, let's pray. Lord, uh, I pray as the book of Hebrews talks about, you would bring people who are yours through biblical means to what you say, fullness of assurance, full assurance of faith. I pray that through this and this kind of scattered teaching, Lord, you would, you would bring words of truth that would build up this body and build up the individual parts of it who have been perhaps struggling or have questions about assurance. I ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.